This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Over the course of the 16th and early 17th centuries, Mughal court painters evolved from illustrators of manuscripts and albums to active mediators of imperial visionary experience, cultivating their patrons' earthly and spiritual authority. The brush of insight, artist, and agency at the Mughal court traces this shift, demonstrating how royal artists created a new visual economy that featured highly naturalistic royal portraits and depictions of emperors' dreams. These images, in turn, shaped the perceptions of Mughal emperors' preeminence in all domains, temporal and spiritual, from the reign of Akbar to that of his son and successor, Jahangir. In analyzing a wide range of visual materials, including manuscripts, albums, and coins, art historian Yael Rice documents how manuscript painters and paintings challenge the status of writing as the primary medium for the transmission of knowledge and experience. The brush of insight probes how pictures and illustrated books became central to imperial modes of seeing and being in early modern Mughal South Asia. In our conversation, we discussed royal court culture, illustrated manuscripts, the role of painters, the collective foundations of the workshop, sacred kingship and Sufi sheikhs, artists as mediators between the spiritual and material worlds, the celebration of the Ruz, and the creation of a specific Mughal artistic style and professional identity. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now, here's my conversation with Yael Rice about The Brush of Insight, Artists and Agency at the Mughal Court, published with the University of Washington Press in 2023. Welcome, Yael. Thank you for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, excited to talk about your uh, not only uh, wonderful to read, but wonderful to look at book, uh, The Brush of Insight. Um, Before we get into it, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your scholarly trajectory, Uh, perhaps uh, mentors or moments uh, in your kind of upbringing or training that brought you to uh, study Islamic art? Yeah, I 
I am by training an art historian. And I think it would be helpful to basically set the stage by saying I came to my PhD program um, and I did that work at the University of Pennsylvania, intending actually to specialize in uh, the architecture of Sultanate India. So that would be kind of broadly 12th to 16th century. And my very first semester of grad school, and I was there studying with two specialists, the South Asianist uh, Michael Meister and um, the Islamicist, again, in the Department of the History of Art at Penn. Um, and that is Professor Renata Holod. Um, and my very first semester, uh, Renata Holod offered a graduate, actually as a graduate and undergraduate seminar focused on a single illustrated manuscript that's in the collections of uh, the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Anthropology and, Ar and, uh, and Archaeology. And it was a really, really unique experience to work with, I think, 10 or 11 students. Um, Renata, uh, we also had as her collaborator, um, a Persian instructor at the university. And it was a whole semester focusing, digging into the single, in this case, a 16th century illustrated copy of uh, the Iranian poet Nizami's Hamsa. And it was just this completely engrossing experience for me. Uh, and I'll say some of the methods that we employed, and this really speaks to Renata's own training, um, were in a way archaeological and architectural in nature. We were really kind of doing a, in almost a kind of excavation of this manuscript, um, looking at everything from uh, the subject matter that was illustrated, the um, appearance of the calligraphy, how the scribe or scribes actually copied um, this, uh, the calligraphy in Persian, um, which is executed in this kind of cursive Nostalic script, um, looking at other kinds of evidence of making, um, erasure, additions, reader's marks, uh, the whole gamut. And um, so I'll just say in short that by the end of the <laughs> semester, I had really shifted direction. Uh, not that I've left architecture um, and the history of the built environment completely behind, but um, manuscripts were it for me. And that's really what started me on the path, at least in grad school, uh, down, you know, the, 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 the study of, of book history, mm. largely. Yeah, I could imagine that would be uh, a, an amazing experience and one that would certainly uh, steer you into a certain direction. Mm. Um, so th this project deals with different materials. Can you talk a little bit about uh, mm -hmm. how this project began to emerge as a book? And then perhaps some of the kind of broader conceptual interventions you were hoping to make with the book? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it does largely fixate on books. And of course, certain kinds of books, not ordinary books per se. Um, these are books that were made in the imperial workshops of the Mughal Empire. Uh, this is, of course, a, an Islamic empire that rules over much of South Asia. Um, from the 16th century to the mid 19th century. My book happens to focus on uh, these illustrated handmade books, manuscripts that are made um, there at the various kinds of workshops and courts across South Asia um, from the end of the 16th into the early 17th centuries. Um, so it, it's very much book focused though. I do, as you mentioned, bring in other kinds of materials and these include um, coins. Um, European 
prints um, that helped to kind of fill out the picture of the types of media that royal painters um, employed at the court were actually involved with. Um, and by involved with, I mean, um, in the case of imperial mogul coinage, um, I suggest, I think it's pretty clear that they're actually designing some of the pictorial figural coins that um, especially are you know, famous and, and um, associated with the, the patronage of the Emperor Jahangir. These are the kind of famous um, coins bearing his portrait image. Um, he's also associated with a whole series of astrological coinage that again bear the signs of the zodiac. Um, so this to me um, it sheds light on various kinds of issues that the book is concerned with. But um, in particular, I wanted to show how uh, painters are not just active in the realm of painting or just in the realm of books, which could have a kind of limited circulation, but in fact are the kind of originators of the designs um, on these special kinds of coins that are then gifted, we think, we believe, by the emperor to a number of different subjects, um, and then kind of go out into the world. Um, you know, they're these subjects, these courtiers, these nobles um, actually wear some of these coins with the, the emperor's portrait image on them, um, on their turbans, around their necks. Um, and so in short, um, the kinds of designs, images, the kind of ground plan of images that painters are responsible for have this kind of larger life out in the world. And in terms of the conceptual issues that I wanted to bring to the fore, with this book, um, they have to do with, you know, what is it that painters actually do? What what are their larger roles in a court society um, beyond um, sort of this top-down um, understanding of, uh, th th that is really sort of historically, I think, how uh, the production of illustrated manuscripts and related materials has been viewed that essentially you have the emperor, the patron who's kind of devising everything, um, who's the kind of mastermind behind um, design, production, and so on. And that just is somehow or other filtered down to the artists that then uh, materialize, right, the emperor's vision, so to speak. Um, my book tries to make the case that uh, that actually it's the painters, the artists who are kind of filling in a lot of that um, that work, uh, that they are uh, in unique and unusual ways actually contributing, uh, I guess unique, original, and substantive ways contributing to um, uh, the kind of ideology, the discourse of, of sovereignty um, that's actually being advanced. They're not just sort of... Um, acting on command. Um, they are, again, contributing to um, this sort of unique vision of sovereignty that's taking shape in South Asia at this court um, at this moment. Now, um, a lot of listeners uh, might not know kind of the, the, the ins and outs of the court and the role of manuscript painters within this. Can, can you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of, of court culture, what types of ventures were happening through the central court, um, and then how were the uh, manuscript painters involved in these activities? Yeah, so 
the Mughals uh, first established um, in a, a small kingdom, let's say, small empire in South Asia um, in the 1520s. They are themselves of Central Asian Turkic origin. They claim descent from uh, the great Turkic warlord of the 15th century Timur on their father's side and from uh, Genghis Khan, the Mongol uh, ruler on their mother's side. And I say this um, also because it means that they um, draw from or, or kind of possess this inheritance of a cosmopolitan aesthetic consumption um, that goes back hundreds of years um, in which the patronage of illustrated manuscripts, both their production, but also the collection was very, very central. Um, so in other words, um, they belong to a, a, a larger Persiany um, sort of courtly tradition where it was incumbent upon princes, upon sultans to, um, to be knowledgeable of various kinds of poetic and prose traditions. Um, you know, this includes, of course, Nizami, it includes the poetry of Sadi, um, of Jami, among others, um, to be familiar with it, to be able to kind of speak intelligently about um, themes that these texts raise, um, but also to know these texts in material format, right, which means material texts in the form of manuscripts and um, related types of materials, uh, so that they could also extemporaneously speak about the, you know, what paintings might contribute to uh, these, again, material texts. And some of the princes, in fact, um, and that includes uh, the Mughal Emperor Akbar, uh, the third of the Mughal Emperors, um, famously received instruction in painting. So this, again, was part of um, the education of princes and how one in these kind of Persian societies became um, cultured and savvy, let's say. Uh, so the Mughals upon kind of instantiating rule in South Asia, bring this um, these traditions with them. Um, they, of course, are already in a way kind of pre-existing in South Asia, but they amplify them um, to the extent that under Akbar, who rules from 1556 to 1605, um, in his uh, in his imperial workshop slash library, what's called in Persian the Kitab Khane or Tasvir Khane, the kind of house of, of images or house of books, um, he uh, inaugurates this, this this sort of intensive bookmaking and book um, reclaiming project that goes on for decades, where literally thousands of illustrated manuscripts. Um, paintings are produced. Um, I can't even think of a, a, a comparable case, uh, at least contemporary with the Mughal Empire, where you have this volume of illustrated manuscripts that are being made um, off the bat, I mean, from scratch. And as I talk about in the book, this includes a new text. So not just the, the kind of um, canonical um, corpus, uh, again, you know, including uh, Nizami's Hamsa, and other kinds of texts, or the Shahname of Ferdowsi, which had by this point been illustrated in manuscript format for centuries, um, but entirely new texts um, that are being composed, edited at the Mughal court at the very same time that they're being illustrated. Um, 
this is, you know, this means that uh, if we can picture this, we, we have this bustling workshop um, employing over 100 painters, not to mention uh, paper burnishers, color mixers, binders, uh, all the other kind of skilled professionals that are required to, uh, to, to keep a workshop of this size, this magnitude going. Um, and I like to paint that picture, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, just to impress upon us, you know, just in terms of labor, volume, numbers, um, how substantial uh, the the kind of book making, and I should say also book preservation, because they're also uh, preserving and updating older manuscripts, in particular Timurid manuscripts that the emperors and princes collect. Um, you know how just so kind of substantial and busy um, this uh, these the, these enterprises were, and I think that again speaks to uh, the degree to which um, for the empire itself, uh, the emperor, the court, the administration, how kind of consequential um, illustrated manuscripts were understood to be. Hmm. You and you. You go into a little bit more detail uh, later on in the book about uh, this relationship between the workshop and the empire. Um, and if, mm. if, if it's okay, maybe I'll jump there um, because you kind of talk about how uh, there's this these, um, you know, co- collective uh, foundations of the of the workshop you know, including folks that you're talking about, paper makers and colorists and designers and, and the artists. Um, And part of what you do is you talk about how um, this kind of collective organization uh, was part of what produced this artistic style and a professional identity among the participants. Can you kind of just talk about that part of it a little bit? Yeah. Uh, So this section of the book, which is where I make the case that uh, it, it's really a kind of collective, in a way, bureaucratic corporate identity um, that is formed among these manuscript painters, especially during the last decades of Akbar's reign. That um, this is, in a way, a response to what has been the consensus in scholarship on the mobile court and its manuscript workshop that. Uh, I, certainly people have long been aware that this was a workshop that employed many, many, many artists. Again, we have the evidence from inscriptions that over 100 painters were employed at various points in time by Akbar's workshop. Um, but the way that these artists have been understood is really um, within the mold of the master, so the, the master artist. And that it's these kinds of few individual painters who are really responsible for innovating um, the Mughal manuscript painting style over the course of the 1580s and 1590s. And thus they are sort of the most consequential players. Um, So what I do, I think, a little differently is to say, actually, if we look really closely at the way that these painters are working in collaboration, because this tended to be, that is, in collaboration, designers working with colorists in pairs or trios on a single 
illustration in a manuscript that this was a kind of modus operandi for the most part, not exclusively. Uh, there certainly were manuscripts containing illustrations where, you know, a single artist worked solo on that work. Um, but overwhelmingly, it's the case um, that they're working in collaboration. If we kind of start to look at the way that they work together, and this is where my interest in the digital humanities and digital humanities tools and approaches comes in. I use um, network analysis and social network analysis and network graphing to, in effect, chart these patterns of collaboration across several of these um, manuscripts with many, many, many illustrations where we have concrete evidence that artists collaborate together. And out of this picture, we start to see, um, or at least I think we see uh, emerge a, a kind of corporate identity um, where artists more often than not, again, are um, sort of teaching each other. Uh, they are filling in each other's designs um, they are fixing or touching up the finished paintings um, of other artists. And I, I think it's really out of this that we start to see solidify what is a, a kind of, um, again, this, this sort of corporate uh, sense of, of self as um, a kind of member of a workshop, member of an administration, member of a society. Um, as opposed to, again, this model of the kind of single lone master artist, uh, which I think doesn't really quite fit um, both the period and the, the context. Um, to me, it, it seems a, a kind of anachronistic um, way of understanding how court painters operated within um, you know, this particular setting. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Um... Now, you, you go into uh, much greater detail on, on this topic within the individual chapters, um, but perhaps just kind of from a general perspective, one of the things you, you do across many of the chapters is um, talk about this relationship between uh, the illustrated manuscripts themselves, the painters as kind of agents of them, and their relationship to religious knowledge or some sort of spiritual insight. Um can, can you just kind of, uh, you know, and I, again, I'm sure this will come up later, but uh, kind of in a over o overview type perspective, mm. what what are the types of uh, religious perspectives or traditions that the artists are drawing from uh, in their creations? And, and how did they serve as kind of mediators between uh, spiritual and, and material words, uh, worlds in some way? Mm. So I think... One of the primary examples is these depictions of Jahangir's dreams that I opened the book with, the very first chapter. Uh, and in that, I really focus on a period of about 10 to 15 years or even less. Um, so during the 16 teens, when Akbar's son and successor, Jahangir, is uh, reigning and um, 
and coincident with his reign, we have this group of, I'd say about five, six, seven paintings or so um, that depict Jahangir doing rather unusual things. And unusual really in the context of the longer history of imperial portraiture from across the Islamic world. Um, and I would add to that across South Asia too. Uh, so uh, one of my favorite examples is this painting and it's probably known to most of your listeners. Um, it's been reproduced widely, but it's this image of Jahangir embracing the Safavid Shah, Shah Abbas. Uh, they are both standing on a what looks like a European terrestrial globe. And uh, Jahangir, of course, very pointedly, each actually it's a standing on an animal, Jahangir, and the lion, uh, Shah Abbas, on the diminutive prey, uh, sorry, uh, prey of, of the lion, which is a predator. In this case, he stands on um, a lamb. And uh, it, it's clearly making a kind of political statement, um, this image of Shah Abbas being subdued by Jahangir, the fact too that the lion that Jahangir stands on is actually covering not only what was then uh, the borders of the Mughal Empire, but a huge chunk of Iran as well. Um, so th there's no mistake about this. This is not necessarily uh, only a scene of um, you know, brotherly affection. Um, incidentally, the two rulers actually never met in person during their lives. Uh, but th this is this is you know about a sort of um, wish for uh, political expansion on the part of the Mughal emperor. What's interesting about it is the way that the artist actually frames um, this uh, this statement about. Uh, territorial uh, and um, material rule. Uh, he states actually in Persian inscriptions that appear in the painting that what we are seeing, what the viewer uh, witnesses in the painting is in fact the contents of a dream. Um, and this is a dream that the emperor Jahangir uh, apparently had uh, in a very, very special location uh, which was uh, Cheshmian Nur, uh, which means the Spring of Light, which was a, or is, because uh, it still exists, um, a spring located just outside of Ajmer in today's Rajasthan, uh, which was associated with the daughter of the Chishti Sufi Sheikh, uh, Moinadin Chishti, whose darga or shrine, um, of course, uh, famously sits in the center of Ajmer. This is all to say that um, it's not only the dream that's significant, but actually where the dream comes to Jahangir um, in this kind of you know, spiritually endowed place or geography um, that was and is still deeply connected with uh, this Chishi saint and his um, baraka or his kind of spiritual emanation. Um, dreams, of course were not necessarily understood to come from the subconscious as um, we might understand them today. But in the 17th century, uh, Jahangir's dream, especially one uh, with, with with such kind of, you know, um, a, a sense of foretelling and impact, um, would have been understood to have come from some kind of heavenly sphere from God, uh, God directly even. So um, in short, this painting and some of the others that I talk about in the first chapter um, really harness uh, this discourse of 
about dreams, um, oneirocriticism, um, and attest to a, a deep understanding on the part of the artist in the kind of power of the dream discourse to articulate um, or express certain kinds of desires or perceived desires on the part of a political sovereign without necessarily um, assigning sort of the uh, will um, behind them to the emperor. In this case, you know, if you say you had a dream that you're going to subdue or conquer Shah Abbas, um, you're uh, claiming that this is a vision of the future that's coming from somewhere else, from some divine source. It's not of your own making. Um, so that's powerful in and of itself. Uh, but also the fact that Jahangir seemed to uh, receive these kinds of divine uh, dream missives um, while in proximity to the body of Moinuddin Chishti and sleeping directly over the spring associated with Moinuddin Chishti's daughter. Um, here, the idea being that he is also, that is Jahangir too, is endowed with some kind of um, you know, spiritual uh, capacity um, by virtue of his being a kind of inheritor of uh, the Chishti spiritual largesse. And this is um, an idea that is kind of communicated in another set of dream paintings that I address in that same chapter. Um, what's interesting to me is that, and I want to just make clear that this kind of iconography, right, depicting your royal patron um, and his dream um, in, in these kinds of loaded settings is highly, highly, highly unusual, at least in paintings. Um, not, in, not necessarily unusual when you look to the textual record. So it was not at all uncommon for um, historians, um, for Sufis to keep records of dreams that kind of look like this, that bear some of the same motifs that appear in um, this painting. Um, by the way, the artist uh, Abul Hassan uh, was responsible for this painting that I'm describing. Um, but it's really the Mughal artists who engineer the pictorial version um, for the very first time. So to kind of bring into color, um, into sort of the physical world, uh, these um, these visions that were otherwise historically recorded um, in writing in manuscripts only. Mm -hmm. um, and then the artist, I, just, just one final word, uh, I suggest occupies a kind of unusual place in the larger kind of hierarchy or equation of um, the dream and its creation because, of course, it is Jahangir who purportedly has the dream, right? So he receives this, uh, again, this, this kind of vision um, from what is known both in Sufi, but also dream discourses as the Alamil al-Mitho, like from this world of images. Um, it's the artist then who gives kind of physical shape to it. So um, he is proclaiming himself through his production to be in effect a kind of copyist of what is originally kind of a celestial image, God's image, that is re then received purportedly by Jahangir, um, the painter kind of merely uh, copies it, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So <laughs> altogether within this scheme, you know, the painters are really, the painters who are responsible for these works, who by the way, are also 
some of them intimates of the emperor. They travel with him. Um, they present uh, gifts to him on on you know important ritual occasions. Um, they're kind of negotiating all all of this um, uh, to fit within um, a system that will permit it. Um, the this theme of kind of uh, access to spiritual knowledge um, mm. kind of carries over through uh, kind of depictions of the imperial body. Um, what what was the way uh, or or how did painters play a role in cultivating the emperor's kind of earthly and spiritual authority through this uh, depiction of the body specifically? Mm. And how were they kind of bringing together this kind of inner and outer character uh, through mm-hmm. their depictions? Mm-hmm. So the moguls were not unusual in their interest, avid deep interest in the science of physiognomy, right? Ilamothrasa. Um, they are inheritors of that tradition, um, which uh, the, the the kind of central notion of which is that uh, what we see on the exterior of the body or here, um, so this extends also to voice, um, is a kind of index or register of uh, one's inner kind of moral makeup. And vice versa, right? So what you see in the body is an expression to of um, they, they go sort of in and out. Um, what I argue is happening at the mogul court that's a little different is, again, uh, the production by painters of paintings um, that seem to allow for this kind of analysis. So um, again, a practice a tradition um, that's attested in verbal um, sources, so textual sources going back centuries, um, here in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, seems to be sort of filled in by paintings too. And um, what we see are is, is a kind of explosion of what we could call portraits, portraits of the emperors, um, portraits of courtiers, portraits of ambassadors, and it goes on. Now, these have been regarded as, you know, being very, very detailed, um, whether they are actually um, faithful to or necessarily kind of reproduce the appearance of their subjects, um, you know, one to one, I question, uh, because when you actually look at these portraits, and this includes the emperors themselves, um, they are on one hand very, very detailed. They sort of suggest a sort of individualization of the subject. And yet you see a idealization too, right? It's a kind of mix of the specific and the ideal um, where, you know, all of the emperors, the princes um, and members of their court, um, you know, sport, you know, similar types of facial hair, uh, mustaches, but also, um, you know, postures, uh, they carry themselves in the same sort of way. They become, through the production of their portraits, part, again, of a, a kind of single imperial body. Um, now, to return to images of the emperors themselves, uh, I 
argued that their portraits, um, which I've already mentioned, appear also on these very special kind of gold coins that were um, awarded or or given out to um, members and visitors to the court, uh, that their images, in a way, become kind of exemplars um, that, you know, to return to this idea of, of, of Ilema Frasa, um, if anyone is, you know, the most kind of noble, you know, on the inside, it's it's the emperors. Um, and this is going to be, uh, the case is going to be made um, through their physical appearance, through um, their portraits. And it goes beyond sort of nobility, uh, something that I address in the first couple chapters, and which, of course, has been um, uh, discussed at length by others before me. And I'm thinking, for example, of um, Asfar Moline's work on the millennial sovereign and so on, uh, that, you know, it's, it, the emperors are not just nobles. They are, in, in fact, they and their ideologues are um, making the case that the Mughal um, sovereign is is a, a kind of messiah figure. Um, and, you know, if we think too of the moment, right? The 1580s and 1590s during Akbar's reign, um, we are approaching the first te- the first turn of the Islamic millennium. There's a kind of millenarian fever, certainly within the Mughal Empire. Uh, there is much discussion about Akbar being this kind of um, you know perfect man, um, this uh, new redeemer who's going to bring during the second millennium um, a, a new age of of peace and so on, and um, the evidence for Akbar and his line's um, ability to fulfill that role is going to be found not only in their kind of genealogy, their descent, um, you know, from Timur, from uh, Genghis Khan, and and many, many other kinds of bits of evidence, but but also, again, uh, as I argue in the book, in their faces, their bodies. Uh, There's much kind of fanfare made uh, Jahangir actually comments upon it in his memoirs, the Jahangir Name, uh, that his father had a mole um, shaped like a chickpea on his nose. And we see this mole actually depicted in a number of portraits of Jahangir, especially the posthumous portraits that are made during um, his son Jahangir's reign. Um, and I talk about the significance of this mole and how it becomes um, a way to connect uh, him with um, other uh, kind of sanctified figures in Islam, um, including the Prophet Muhammad and others who were said to also have moles. Um, so there are all these different ways that sort of, you know, close physical analysis of um, the emperor's bodies are become kind of entangled with uh, these portraits that um, artists are making um, to be studied and to be circulated. Um, in the last chapter, you move towards uh, kind of exploring the painter's role in the celebration of uh, mm. Nowruz, which uh, under the Mughals was made to coincide with this uh, in, uh, imperial ascension anniversary. Um, can can you talk about the types of ceremonies and events that were uh, associated with this, these celebrations and then how were uh, painters participating uh, yeah. in these. So this is really important. Uh, as you mentioned, the uh, Mughal Empire essentially 
um, adjusts the regnal calendar such that the emperor's uh, accession anniversaries would fall on no roots, right? So um, that didn't happen naturally. They couldn't decide when, you know, a, a given emperor was was going to come to the throne. Um, but after the fact that they could, you know, um, essentially move that anniversary to fall uh, around March 21st or 22nd, which is the date of Nowruz, the, you know, falling on the vernal equinox. So this is really, really important. It becomes this kind of like doubly, triply potent occasion. And um, we have lots of information about how Nowruz was slash the accession or Jalus um, in a anniversary was celebrated at the Mughal court because it's um, talked about a lot in official sources. In fact, Jahangir's memoirs, the Jahangir Name, is organized such that each chapter begins with Nowruz, right? It's ordered according to his own um, uh, regnal calendar. And um, if you read the Jahangir Name, you might be left with the impression that very little else happened except for the celebration of Nowruz because the first number of pages of every chapter um, is just a, almost like a enumeration of all the feasts that were held, um, various kinds of ceremonies, and numerous, numerous, numerous gifts that were exchanged. So in short, um, these celebrations took place over uh, a couple weeks. It wasn't just a single day. And um, as one would anticipate from uh, in, in a royal and gift society, uh, the burden of hosting and giving and receiving gifts was central. Uh, so important nobles were expected to host parties for the emperor. Uh, they were expected to be in attendance at official uh, audiences uh, that were staged. Uh, grand, grandly staged on these occasions, and um, they would uh, be expected to give uh, massive numbers of gifts, including horses, gold, gems. Uh, if they were governors stationed in far-off um, subas or, or provinces, they would be expected to give some of the fruits of those um, provinces. Uh, to essentially show a sort of productivity and abundance. Um, and they would in turn, again, this is kind of the compact of the gift, uh, they would in turn be awarded uh, um, increases or hope to be awarded increases in rank. Um, and, and this is how things uh, essentially operated. This was the, the kind of machinery of, of empire and its connection to these ritual occasions. Now, in the case of painters, right, they did not have... Um, gold and horses and elephants to give the emperors. Um, it seems that their gift on these occasions um, took the form of, not surprisingly, paintings. And um, we have actually textual uh, material evidence that this tradition of um, giving paintings on the occasion of the Nauru slash Toulouse goes back to as early as the 1550s. Um, and the reason I find this really significant is that uh, the textual sources go at length um, to establish that uh, in these cases of Nuru's paintings, what are known as Amelie Nuru's or Nuru's works, uh, that the um, 
creators of these works actually not only made them for Nowruz, uh, but actually made them on the very moment of Nowruz, the very moment of the equinox. Um, in some case, uh, cases, we have inscriptions that state that the artist completed it in half a day or within an hour. Um, so their kind of time specificity um, intrigued me and suggested to me that uh, this is in a way a kind of opportunity for the artist to inscribe his work, what he actually does, um, figuration, painting into this ritual cycle um, and literally, you know, into sort of the very moment that um, the cosmic occurrences that establish um, the equinox occur. Um, the painting I was referring to earlier by the painter um, Abul Hassan, this very, very famous work of Jahangir, embracing Shah Abbas. Um, and listeners, if you're not familiar with it, you can see it actually on the website of the National Museum of Asian Art uh, online. Um, this work bears an inscription stating that Abul Hassan um, executed the painting in haste because Nowruz was approaching. Uh, this seemed really, really, really important to me. Uh, one, to establish the idea that uh, this is not just a painting. Again, I'm referring to this dream painting, uh, not just a painting that the artist made on Jahangir's command, right? Um, it kind of invests in the artist maker this level of agency that he's in a way kind of initiating this project um, and the likelihood that he was executing it um, in the hopes of presenting it to his royal patron um, as his gift um, for uh, for Nuru's, um and the accession anniversary. Of course, it is also a kind of humble brag because looking at the painting, um, you would never, ever, ever believe that Abul Hassan completed this work on haste. Um, the way that these paintings are made, and I, you know, just just to you know make clear to listeners that um, these are on paper. They um, are contained in books. Um, they're small, but perhaps not as small as you might imagine. Uh, but you know, they would require uh, months of. Um, skilled labor um, to build up the layers of opaque watercolor um, that are used to create these kind of sumptuous, highly detailed, color-saturated, complicated um, compositions. So to come back to um, Nowruz and, uh, and this, the whole kind of role of time within it, um, I, I think, you know, the Nowruz gift and the artist's kind of part in uh, contributing a painting towards that end um, is a way, again, for the painter to um, inscribe himself within um, a, a kind of royal ritual um, economy uh, that is separate from the kind of more mundane bureaucratic economy uh, in which he normally um, operated, where uh, the amount of time that he spent, for example, painting would have been recorded. Um, these, this is actually how the workshop um, created budgets for manuscript projects. They had to know exactly how many days, um, or they would tell the artist only work this number of days uh, because they did not have, you know, limitless expenses. 
Um, so the artist's painting in effect um, existing within the ritual Nuru's framework becomes this, you know, starts to operate on a, a kind of different order. Hmm. Now, there are tons of details uh, throughout this book and uh, dozens of images. I don't even know how many images there are. Um, is there any that you want to, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's something we missed that you're like, oh man, right. I really want to talk about this or some aspect perhaps of uh, painterly court life that uh, is essential for folks to know. Uh, yeah. But I want to give you an opportunity to kind of uh, tease the book a little bit more if you'd like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are over 80 illustrations. Um, and it's a, a kind of funny thing to talk about a book with many illustrations that is about illustrating, but without having the images on hand. Uh, so I've done my, I, I've tried to to do some of them justice by describing them. Um, I do want to say that many of them, uh, one would be able to view online through museum and library collection websites. Um, I think one that comes to mind is actually on the cover of the book. And it's one of my favorite. It comes from an album uh, that was assembled originally during Jahangir's reign. Um, it is added to or slightly adjusted during the reign of his son and successor, Shah Jahan. And then further things are actually done to this album in Iran, interestingly, uh, where this album travels slash is taken during the 18th century, perhaps by Nadir Shah, who loots the Mughal court in the middle of the 18th century. So this is an important album just to establish that important fact. Um, and in its original kind of instantiation um, uh, under the, the patronage of Jahangir, um, it's a, a kind of um, sort of book collection of favorite paintings, drawings, um, but also calligraphies that had up to that point been uh, collected at the Mughal court. And uh, you know, we could think of it as almost like a museum in book format. And I make the case throughout the book um, that, of course, painters, I think, had quite a bit of latitude in um, painting what and the way that they did. And I suggest in the case in this really, really important royal album, uh, which likely was sort of um, shared, viewed uh, by Jahangir um, in sort of the company of, of various people at court and visitors um, that, you know, much of what we see is, is by the artist design, as opposed to this idea that, you know, Jahangir is kind of sitting um, in the workshop, looking over their shoulder, telling them exactly what to do, what to make, um, what to pair together. So the image that appears on the cover of the book is interestingly um, paintings of two painters and they are both shown in the acts of paintings. And I talk about, um, this particular detail because it's actually just the bottom half of a larger page from this album um, in the final chapter of the book and about how it can be read as a kind of commentary on the acts of creation uh, because in both instances the artists are depicted um, executing paintings that are unfinished so um, I kind of gloss this, I interpret this as a statement about the createdness of the imperial painter's work. Um, why is this important? Because uh, although there's an abundance of 
figural images um, created at the Mughal court in manuscript and other media, um, there, you know, there were still debates about the licitness of works like this. And I'm thinking specifically of certain hadith, one in particular that cautions artists that, you know, on the day of judgment, they will be called upon to breathe life into their creations. And of course they will fail because only God can do that. Um, so this depiction of painters in the act of depic depicting, um, I think underscores their awareness that what they do is not on the order of what God creates, um, that they copy, they fill in um, with color, uh, the architecture of design, um, but ultimately it is kind of made by human hands, right? They're not going to kind of challenge um, God's creative authority. And as if to kind of, you know, drive home that larger point, um, the artist who is depicted on the left-hand side, who here interestingly is shown actually um, in the act of uh, what looks like a, creating a, a painting of the Virgin Mary, behind him is a window or what can be read as a window. And we see um, in, uh, in this kind of window, this niche, um, this distant setting, uh, a landscape scene um, that seems to, through the use of um, cooler colors in the background, it seems to show a kind of smooth spatial recession into the horizon. Um, but its appearance here is kind of belied by its situation, its context within um, the larger setting, uh, which shows a different kind of landscape. So um, in short, this kind of window behind the painter, uh, one starts to kind of question, are we looking at what is supposed to be a window or is it actually supposed to be a depiction of a landscape? Mm -hmm. And of course it is all painting anyway. So uh, so th this this is in a way just, just to kind of flesh out a little bit what's going on uh, with the cover of the book um, and how I think it it kind of invites discussion um, and critical commentary on the very nature of depiction, uh, what it is that painters do, what they contribute, and what they adamantly do not do. Yeah, well, it's a it's a wonderful book. Uh, congratulations. And uh, it was very uh, enjoyable to to read through both from a uh, kind of intellectual vantage point, but also from a, a spectator's perspective. I'm, I'm mm. certainly going to return to it uh, often. Um, before I let you go, uh, I'd love to hear about things you might be working on now or things that might be in the pipeline that uh, listeners might be able to uh, to read down the road. Yeah. Um, I want to mention two things. One is a reader on Indian painting that I'm co-editing with another art historian, that's Dipti Kara. Uh, and this reader actually um, draws from the larger archive of about 75 years in date of Marg magazine. Uh, Marg, as some of your listeners will know, is a major um, uh, art sort of publishing press uh, based in Mumbai, formerly Bombay. And um, for now seven, 75 years, they've been publishing kind of standalone volumes, but also issues of a magazine uh, four times 
annually. And what uh, Dipti and I have done is go into this vast archive and select uh, articles that have been published either in the magazine or in these standalone volumes to be reproduced in this reader. I'm really excited about that um, because, and, and hopefully that will be out by the end of this year or early 2024. Um, I'm excited about it because of its potential actually um, to be used in teaching. Um, both in South Asia and beyond it. And I think um, it, it really, it does something really important in establishing um, what uh, the kind of impact that a press in South Asia has had on the, the field. Um, so that's one thing. Um, a second thing I'm involved with that I think connects much more closely with um, the Brush of Insight is a project on South Asian albums. Um, so I kind of alluded to these types of objects in our conversation. Uh, the Mughals, of course, were not the only ones who patronized albums, these, these kind of book collections of paintings and calligraphies and drawings. Um, the practice uh, expanded across the subcontinent over the course of the 17th century. Uh, by the early 19th century, uh, we have... Um, uh, British patrons of these albums, French patrons, uh, we have Rajput pa uh, patrons. Um, it's really um, become a, a, a kind of much, much larger phenomenon. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested in what albums become by the 18th and 19th centuries, um, how and why they circulate so widely um, how and why they are revised, taken apart, edited um, by each subsequent owner. Um, and, you know, what their, that is the albums, what their kind of geographical and political trajectories tell us about um, the lives of, of books and the makers and users of books um, around the world during the 18th and 19th centuries. So this project, in short, is, is bringing me into later periods that are new for me. Uh, kind of overwhelming, but but also really exciting. And um, I'm curious also to see how I can bring um, the approaches and tools of digital humanities to bear on what is actually a kind of big data problem slash project. Too. Yeah. Wow. Sounds really cool. Very exciting. Well, well, good luck. And uh, thanks again for making time to to talk about this wonderful book. Congrats. Thanks so much, Christian. It's been it's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Yael Rice about The Brush of Insight, Artists and Agency at the Mughal Court, published with the University of Washington Press in 2023. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.